0: The following audio is from Crossroads Church in West Ossipee, New Hampshire. For more information about Crossroads Church, you can go to www.crossroadsossipee.com. Hello. Um, I, uh, I, I forgot the catechism slides this week, so sorry about that. I'm, I'm disappointed. Yeah, it's kind of a busy week, but no excuses. Um, so uh, you have it, uh, you have the book, you have the app. Um, if you don't know what that is, you can look for the New City Catechism in your app store on your phone or whatever, um, and you can follow along with us. I think we are on question 16 this week. Um, so, And uh, we won't be doing that with the kids with Sunday school because we have lunch in the Lord's Supper today. So. Um, if, if this is your first time with us today, uh, there's lunch served after service, um, and you can come and eat. And we—that's how we celebrate uh, communion, the Lord's Supper, together around the table. So, uh, please uh, come come downstairs uh, for that. So, um, so we're going to get back to the Gospel of Luke this morning. So you can turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter nine, uh, verses 22 through 27, and that's on page 867 in the pew Bibles. Now, I see that you're not doing that um, <laughs> because it's on the screen, right? And that's that's fine. If you didn't bring a Bible or there isn't a pew Bible in front of you, that's fine. But if you actually open your Bible, you can uh, get a chance to see, you know, when you're not listening to me, what's on the other sides of that text so you can see a greater context. Um, I, I would encourage you to do that because I am not infallible. Uh, I, I'm trying my best, but... Um, I might be wrong, and the Word of God is always right. So if your if your finger is in there, uh, you you may be able to see if I'm if I've gotten off. So uh, I would encourage you, again, to turn there, um, uh, to turn there with me. Um, so we've jumped around a little bit in the last um, the last few weeks in Luke chapter nine, kind of bounced around. Um, to tie together some different thoughts. And this time we're going to backtrack just a little bit uh, to give a little better context to this teaching of Jesus found in verses 23 through 27. So Jesus had been questioning the disciples on who the crowds said he was and who they said he was um, and how the crowds believed he was perhaps John the Baptist uh, raised from the dead or, or maybe Elijah uh, come back in his flaming chariot or, or maybe one of the other old prophets come back to life. Um, but Peter, on behalf of the disciples, uh, gave the good confession in um, in verse 20 when he says, "You are the Christ of God." Well, this morning we're going to look at the implications of that great confession, that great truth that Jesus is the Christ, the chosen one, God's Messiah. So we're going to look at the implications of that today. So let's look at our text. We're going to start at verse 22, and then we'll pray and dive in. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels." But I tell you, truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until, the see, until they see the kingdom of God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we ask for your help this morning as we turn to your word. We thank you that these are your words preserved for us to read today. We thank you for the great privilege that we have to hold this book, to read your words and to hear from you. And now we pray, Lord, that the Holy Spirit would be our interpreter to show us the meaning and to find the implications and the applications of the truth of your word. We thank you that you are so reliable in guiding and directing us. Again, we thank you for this word. We thank you for this time. We thank you for your presence with us. In Jesus' name, amen. So um as has already been said I think we had uh we had an event here yesterday um in the building uh the it was a Maranatha annual conference and the Maranatha conference is uh um, is made up of like-minded churches well oh, I don't know that's not fair to say not like-minded like us I don't know um a, Advent Christian churches like this one uh, throughout New Hampshire and Vermont, um, and a little bit of southern Quebec, and there's, is there one in New York? One in New York. It's a one-church one conference in New York, so we're trying to pull them in, I guess. Anyway, a bunch of pastors and leaders from uh, from different churches around New Hampshire and Vermont, so... The crowd was not as big as this crowd this morning, but it was really neat to kind of touch base with some of these guys, um, some of these folks from different places, some we knew and some we didn't, um, and kind of hear a little bit about what the Lord is doing in the church, in the network that we're connected to. Um, I don't know how connected you feel to this network, um, but uh, you are beneficiaries of this network. Uh, Every Sunday I tell you to turn in the Pew Bible. Maranatha Conference provided those pew Bibles for us when we were brand new, uh, when when we didn't have um, good Bibles in our pews. So, um, and they've been a big support to me personally um, uh, over uh, over the last eleven years. So, I'm I'm grateful for them, and it was it was encouraging to hear some of what's uh, what's going on. Um, so, I'd be happy to talk with you more about that if you have questions. Uh, and several folks were here helping out, and I'm really grateful for that, for the folks that helped um, with with the food, serving lunch, and with the the, um, the spread of snacks and coffee and water. It was just wonderful, and it was great to extend hospitality to this group. And, and I was dreading the whole thing, and you guys really stepped up and shined, and that was, that was fantastic. You made up for me for sure. Um, so I'm grateful for that. Um, all right, so let's get back to our text um, now that I've completely derailed. Um, yeah, I just did it again. I don't even know what I'm talking about. So why I write this stuff down. So, um, all right, so it's important for us to remember that the verses that, um, that we just read and the, um, the first verse of those, verse 22, when, uh, when Jesus says that the Son of Man Must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. It's important for us to understand that Jesus was addressing just the disciples, right? Just the twelve when he said that. Um, That was in private. And then in verse twenty-three, it says he said to all, right? So there's a crowd of people um, at this point that he was talking to. This is the the crowd. Of the 5,000 men plus women and children that were fed with the five loaves and the two fish. So this is a big group of people. So Jesus had described to the disciples what their confession meant. What being the Christ of God meant. And we talked about that a few weeks ago. What it didn't mean that Jesus was the Christ. It didn't mean that Jesus would go to Jerusalem and go to the palace and take his place as king. It didn't mean that he would defeat the political oppressors of the nation of Israel and restore their country back to them. It didn't mean that all of their desires for themselves and their country would be granted to them. It didn't mean any of that. It did mean That he would go to Jerusalem and be mistreated and rejected by the religious leaders, by their religious leaders, the ones who they were looking to to lead their nation spiritually. It did mean that he would go to the cross instead of the throne. It did mean that he would pay the penalty for the sins of mankind. It did mean that he would defeat our one true oppressor, the devil. It did mean it would restore our relationship with God the Father through faith in Jesus and his atoning death and resurrection. And it did mean that instead of granting them the desires of their hearts for themselves and their country, it meant instead that following him would cost them everything. And here we have the most popular teaching of the 21st century church. <laughs> Love that, right? Following Jesus comes at a cost. Now I'm sitting over, here, sitting over here during worship and thinking about what is in this sermon this morning, not wanting to leave my seat, and feeling great compassion for those of you who are new <laughs> and those of you who aren't. Following Jesus comes at a cost. I know this is so popular in the church today because all the most popular teachers are, are out there selling books on this. Right? They are filling stadiums with people that just can't wait to hear what following Jesus is going to cost them. What they're going to have to give up to follow Jesus. I'm not sure I've seen a lot of bestsellers on that one, one, this one. Now, to be clear, uh, before we get any further, I want to I I be clear. <laughs> there is a distinct difference between salvation and discipleship. Okay, I just we need to know that there is a difference. Our salvation, our forgiveness for our sin and freedom from sin's penalty, death and eternal separation from God, destruction that has been paid for by Jesus on the cross. There is nothing left to be paid. There is no work left to be done. It is a completed work. There's nothing left for us to do. There's nothing we could ever add to that, and there's nothing we could ever take away from it. Jesus paid it all. And when we come to faith in Jesus, now we have to follow Jesus. This is the teaching that gets missed. That coming to faith in Jesus just means there are certain things that I believe about who Jesus is, what he did on the cross, he rose from the dead. I I believe all that stuff is true. However, that's where it ends. And what Jesus said about how I live or, or the things that I should do or not do, the places I should go or not go, the kind of language that I should use or not use, I mean... That's for, like, I don't know, seminary people, not, not me. That's not following Jesus, right? I'm not talking about earning our salvation here. Again, I would, I just this has to be black and white as I can make it. I'm not talking about earning God's favor. Like, God's going to like me more if I do more bible stuff, you know, if I show up more often at church. No. God can't love you anymore. He can't love you any less. So nothing that we do makes him like us more, makes us make him happy with us. Nothing. And I'm not talking about uh, making God love us enough to earn our salvation, to earn our forgiveness. What I want to talk about and what, the, what Jesus is talking about, is what happens once we are saved. You come to faith in Christ, now what does life look like? As Alistair Begg put it, the entry fee to the Christian life is nothing. But the annual fee will cost us everything. Verse 23 says, Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Now, I've got to be honest with you. This statement of Jesus used to really trip me up, and maybe it still is. I thought that because Jesus was the only person that I'd ever heard of that got crucified, that he was the first one to ever be crucified. Right. So, just to give you a snapshot, I am kind of numb. Um, right. So I, I just—he was the only one I knew of, so he must be the only one. Who had ever been crucified? And the disciples couldn't have possibly understood exactly what Jesus was talking about. What? What? What do you mean? Take up? What's a cross? Right? This is this. This is the dialogue that goes through my mind. Jesus says, "Whoever would follow me must take up his cross daily and, fo- and 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 follow me. Whoever would come after me." And they'd be like, "A what now? I've got to take up my. What's a cross? This. Anyway." Just I'm dumb. It's Come to grips with the reality. It's almost as if the, this whole idea would have been a real mystery to them until after the crucifixion. Just because it was a, a mystery to me. Or this is I thought this because I didn't understand my history. Now, I'm not talking about like this was Thursday. I mean this is years ago, right? <laughs> I didn't know my history. And maybe you don't either. The history of crucifixion. Around the time that Jesus was about 11 years old and living in Nazareth, um, the Romans, who were the, that was, those were the people in charge of Israel, this was the nation that had taken over this um, occupying force, the Romans had crushed a rebellion in the city of Sepphoris, which is about five, uh, four or five miles north of Nazareth. Um, and they crucified about 2,000 men. And they hung them on crosses on the road from Sephorus to Nazareth. They lined the road with men crucified that participated in this rebellion. Where did Jesus live when he was 11 years old? Nazareth. Jesus would have seen this road and these men hung on crosses to suffer and die at the hands of the Romans. Crucifixion didn't begin with the Romans. Crucifixion began with the Assyrians and the Babylonians. And it had been practiced by the Persians since around 6,000 B.C. is what the historians think. Now, B.C. means before Christ, just in case you're confused about that, not common era before Christ, right? 600 years before Jesus was born uh, and continued to be perfected and practiced by the Romans until the Emperor Constantine outlawed it in the fourth century AD. We're talking a thousand years of crucifixions. Hundreds of thousands of people were brutally killed by being crucified. So, what do you see when you think of the cross? What do you think of? What comes up in your mind? Maybe it's a reminder of Jesus' death, right? Maybe um, you look at the cross and see salvation. That's why the people wear the cross. That's why people do the sign of the cross, to remind themselves of Jesus' death and resurrection what he did for their salvation. Now, that's you, though. What do you think the disciples saw when they thought of a cross? We can't forget the original audience. We can't forget who Jesus was talking to that day. What do you think they saw? Now, I can only guess, but I think they saw Humiliation. When a person is hung on the cross, they're stripped naked, beaten until they're bleeding, and hung for all the world to see, exposed. They saw suffering. The Romans decided that they could only scourge a person Uh, hit them with whips with with pieces of bone and rock and glass embedded in the straps of leather. They could only do it thirty nine times because 40 times would kill a person. But thirty nine would keep them clinging to life. And then they would nail them to the cross. When the disciples looked at the cross, they saw humiliation and suffering and death. When you hang a person on a cross, they don't bleed to death. We think, man, a massive wound in the hand, which is this part, not this part. It's been, it doesn't take a lot of science to think if you put your body weight on this part of your hand, it's coming off. But this part, it sticks. This is your hand, okay? This is your little anatomy lesson for today. (laughs) And this is where the nails went through. This is also a center of nerves. So it's the most painful place that you could put a nail for a person, if you're going to put a nail in their hand. And when a person is nailed to the cross, they don't bleed to death, though that is a gaping wound through the hands and through the feet. They asphyxiate. Because when your hands are like this, and you don't have any strength left, and all your body weight is on your arms, your head hangs down until you don't have the strength to lift it anymore, and you suffocate. And it takes a really long time, days. That's what the disciples saw when Jesus said, whoever would come after me must pick up their cross daily and follow me. they saw the most humiliating way to die on display for all to see a long, agonizing, slow death from blood loss and eventually asphyxiation. So Jesus says to them, to this crowd, if anyone would come after me, they must pick up their cross, deny themselves, pick up their cross daily and follow me. The picture they saw was far more graphic, a far more graphic picture of the cost of following Jesus than I could ever have imagined and still struggle to. Maybe you do too. John Calvin wrote, let it be the interrupted exercise of the godly That when many afflictions have run their course, they may be prepared to endure fresh afflictions. Far too often the rosy picture is painted of people. You come to Christ and then your life gets good. Because it's a really bad sales pitch to say, come to Jesus and everything's going to fall apart. And people are going to make fun of you and your family isn't going to talk to you anymore. And people might actually hate you. And people might actually want to kill you. Join the club, right? Welcome. But we're going to have potluck. So there's that. (laughs) There is good news. Jesus said, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? So Jesus here shows us the difference between two different types of life, right? So here's some rich theology here hiding right under the surface. Who knew you could go to Jesus for good theology? Two different types of life, a lower and a higher, a natural and a spiritual, a temporal and an eternal life. And he also shows us the value or importance of each one. If anyone is unwilling to surrender the lower for the sake of the higher, they will eventually lose both. This is salvation. To deny ourselves is to do just that it's to surrender the lower, to surrender the natural to surrender the temporal for the sake of our higher, spiritual, eternal life. Now, when you think about denying yourself to follow Jesus, that's what he says. He must, anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Now, when you think about people denying other people, you're in church now. So you've got to come up with a churchy answer. Who's the most famous denier you can think of? I'm going to go with Peter because I didn't write any examples for Judas. This is a good guess. Peter. This is the same man who declared on behalf of the disciples that Jesus is the Christ of God. who Would eventually deny him. Three times, not just once. Three times to slave girls, low, uh, low on the social ladder. He was unwilling to claim Christ, even in front of a slave girl. He says, I do not know the man. Aren't you one of his followers? I don't know the man. You must be with him. Your accent betrays you. You're a Galilean like him. I don't know the man. Someone who saw him in the garden, related to the guy whose ear he cut off. I saw you. You're one of them. You're one of his followers. I do not know the man. Now, this is what our denying ourselves needs to look like. I do not know the man. Who is driven by the desires of the flesh. I do not know the man. Or woman. Let's be fair. I do not know the individual. Who is consumed by greed. Who is driven by pride. Who looks out for themselves first. I don't know that person. What good does it do us to follow such a one? We could gain the whole world, as Jesus puts it, to fill our pockets with gold and silver and all that we desire in this life. Everything that we think of is good. Everything that the world thinks of is good. And what does it get you? In the end, it only costs us the next life if we turn away from Jesus to get it. I love the old joke about the rich man who insisted when he died that he be buried with his gold in the casket? And so he dies, they line his casket with the gold bricks. This is theologically inaccurate. I've told this joke here before, and I said the same thing then. This is not theologically accurate. Eschatology, it's horrible. The man dies, and he goes to heaven and stands at the pearly gates before Peter. All not biblical, right? He stands at the pearly gates before Peter, and he's got all this gold bricks around him. And Peter says, hi, you're welcome to come in. I just have one question for you. The man says, sure, fire away. Uh, Why did you bring all this pavement? Our streets are made of gold. That's worthless here. You don't need that, right? I'd be happy to explain all of the points of theologically uh, wrong material there in that joke later. The Apostle Paul was a man who once had it all by the world standards, even the religious world standards. He's a Pharisee, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, like he's a cream of the crop, man. He was, reached the top of the ladder as a young man, right? Uh, studied, studied under Gamaliel, who was a top rabbi in Jerusalem, uh, and who worked his way above uh, lots of other people his age, and really had had it all. And he wrote in Philippians 3, verse 7 through 11. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. That's a polite translation into English. Human excrement is the Greek word, and I'll leave it at that. I, considered, uh, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as human excrement in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Jesus said in verse 26, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. This is Jesus' warning to that crowd. This is the warning. What are you going to choose? To follow Jesus means taking up our cross daily. It means denying ourselves continuously. Not like that one time at the Billy Graham crusade when you, when you filled out the card and you denied yourself then and that was it. Or maybe you went uh, to the old Super Bowl rallies they used to have and they get you all whipped up in a frenzy and get you exhausted and then preach the gospel and you had no defense and, and, you, and you filled out the card, you went forward and filled out the card and then nothing changed. Or maybe you went to church that one time and they had a guest preacher that wasn't me that preached a really good message and you got all emotional about it but nothing changed. To follow Jesus means to deny ourselves. Not just believing right things but following Jesus' footsteps willing to suffer humiliation and shame, and abuse, and death. And over the history of the church, there's been lots of people that have thought that day, you know, it may be on the horizon, I guess, maybe that day is coming, or maybe it's just not. And following Jesus costs them their lives. It happens fast. The day is coming. The day is coming for us. The day is coming that this might be exactly what is required of us. Things in this world are going from bad to worse, and it's not going to get easier. The Bible promises that it's going to get worse. Hooray! It's going to get harder to follow Jesus publicly. But what makes that easier is keeping our eyes on the horizon. Because Jesus is coming back. We can trust him moment by moment as that day approaches. When we forget about what's coming, what's on the other side of this life, all of that suffering isn't worth it. C.S. Lewis was the one that said it's the ones who think precisely uh, uh, the least of the next life that are least effective in this one. They're not willing to give up the temporary for the eternal. Not willing to give up the natural for the spiritual. 2 Thessalonians 1, 5-12 says, This is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. The reward for following Jesus far outweighs the cost of following Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Father, this is not an easy thought for us. Maybe not what we thought we were going to hear when we got out of bed this morning. Lord, we trust your Holy Spirit. To put these words to work. We ask for your help, Lord, because this seems impossible, too difficult for us. And it is. We need the help of your Holy Spirit. When the time comes that we do endure real persecution, real suffering, Pray that you would give us the strength to endure. Pray that you would help us keep our eyes on the return of Jesus so we would know that the suffering will come to an end, whether by our death or by your return. We can look forward to enjoying you forever in your kingdom, regardless of what happens to us in this life. We're so grateful for your grace. We're so thankful that you willingly took the cross on your shoulders first for us. Give us the strength to bear our own crosses daily, denying ourselves and following you. We love you, Lord, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would like to participate in the mission of Crossroads Church through financial support, checks can be mailed to Crossroads Church. Post Office Box, 576, West Ossipee, New Hampshire, 03890.